This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss. I'm the director of Church Society and I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Kirsten Burkett, our theological consultant, and Dr. Chris Moore, who is our regional director in the Southwest. Uh, Good to see you both. Today we're going to talk about universalism, which is an old and very attractive heresy. What is universalism? It's the idea that everyone will be saved in the end. And it may have some precursors in the early church. People like Oregon are often um, thought of as teaching um, universalism. But we find in the Bible that uh, the Lord Jesus says things like this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me john 14 6 and of course in acts 4 12 we find the disciples saying that there's no other name by which we must be saved but jesus um there are people though uh, chris who say that yes of course we're only saved by jesus but um, that means that still everyone will be saved they just don't know that it's by jesus so muslims will be saved if they're sincere muslims um, but they'll be saved by Jesus, even though they don't realise that. Uh, is, is that is that a good idea? Is that right? <laughs> you setting me up here, Lee. Of course. <laughs> now, I think there is there's that kind of, uh, what would you call it, inclusive pluralism, maybe, that, that looks at all, all faiths and none, as um, people would look to say. But I think we do see an exclusivism within Christianity, which it, it's hard to put alongside that kind of understanding i think there is that sense within the the early church as well that there was this very particular thing that we have to present it's there in the gospels it's there in the new testament that you know we have to present this message of salvation through christ as you said jesus says i am the way the truth and the life and so i I do think it is particularly difficult for those um religions who don't hold the same view as christ who don't hold that to say um that they almost without knowing it or against their will might become, um, I don't crypto-Christians. I'm not quite sure how you... Anonymous. Would, They're anonymous, anonymous Christians, it's often that's described it. as. Yes. That's it. I, I'm not sure. It To me, it seems a bit like sort of Christian imperialism. We're just going to claim everybody in all the other religions anyway and we'll shove them all in and we'll, we'll count them in our number. It does sound rather insulting to, to Muslims. I mean... Yeah. Uh, the, 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 what I immediately thought of, but I, I don't see how I could have a respectful conversation with a Muslim if that's really what my attitude is. Mm. Yes, you how do, would that work? Do you wonder why you'd have a conversation at all on any matter of faith if in the end none of it particularly matters? We're all heading in the same direction anyway. <laughs> that's true. Yes, yes. Why would you bother? Yeah. Why, why are people attracted to the idea, Kirsty? Why, why do people think that universalism is a is a good thing to to hold to? Uh, well, partly because we hate the idea of hell, uh, rightly so. It, it's horrible, uh, and, and it's horrible to think that uh, of anyone being punished for, for what they do. But uh, until, of course, we start thinking of the really horrible things that people do to each other, and then you start realising, actually, 
sometimes punishment is deserved uh, because the sins that people can commit against other humans can be horrendous. And even the sins that we don't think are so horrendous still hurt. Uh, you know, and you start to realise actually maybe the there is a sense in which sin needs to be punished and needs to be dealt with. And I think the other way that, the, the other reason that, that people like the idea of universalism is that no one really likes criticising, no, I should put that another day, another way, some people really love criticising other people. <laughs> they do. Yes, but there is a sense in which um, universalism comes through a spirit of wanting to be accepting and tolerant. And that, I mean, those are good qualities. You know, we want to love other people and therefore we think, well, we want everyone to be saved. That's that's usually the spirit in which universalism mm. is preached. Mm. But is it, is, isn't that tolerant and accepting and good, though? I mean, does it? Does it lead to more tolerance and acceptance down the line, Kirsty? Uh, the problem is you just find something else to be intolerant about. Uh-huh. You know, humans will be, um, will divide the world into good and bad. It's, it's an essential part of us, I think. It is an instinct. We all have this moral instinct. And if we don't inhabit that instinct with what the Bible teaches, we'll just inhabit it with something else. So if, if you're going to uh, preach universalism in the name of tolerance, what happens is you just find something else to be intolerant about. Mm. You, know, you start being intolerant against anti-universalists yes. or something like that. Yes. Mm. It's like uh, Tom Lehrer, the satirical songwriter, used to say, he said, I, I, I do know that everyone should love their fellow man. We should love their fellow man. There are people who do not love their fellow human beings, and I hate people like that. Um, so we end up, uh, that's exactly yeah, it. Yeah. Yes, Chris. I think there's something also. Um, I think there's an Anglican. Oh no, let me let me get that correct myself. There's a Church of England form of universalism. I can't get the word out. Universalism as well, because we do we are in a situation in the good old C of E where we are uh, reducing dramatically in terms of numbers, um, whether that's numbers who are attending worship or numbers who profess uh, to be Christian at all in the latest census. And that's a challenge to us as a, as a state religion. And mm. a response to that is to say, well, but we're a Christian country anyway, so, so everybody gets there. Well, they've all gone through, say, church schools. So therefore, those million children that we're often told about who are in church schools, that they'll be fine because they're kind of under the umbrella of the church school. And I, I think there's almost a kind of an established form of universalism, which is within the Church of England. And it's a way of helping us to cope with the fact that we are losing people hand over fist in terms of the church itself and in terms of worshipping and in terms of what we would call our worshipping community. So we might comfort ourselves with thinking well, it doesn't really matter because, you know, they're they're all going to heaven anyway. Our job is just to is to sort of serve our community through very good things like warm spaces and food banks and other things which aren't controversial. And we'll leave yes. the controversial bit out because frankly, we're we're English and, and well mission's a bit vulgar, isn't it? You know, for for a polite Englishman to indulge in. Of course. But actually, when you say, I mean, it does sound very Anglican, this uh, universalist sort of heresy. But um, I think I'd say two things to that. One is the 39 articles, which actually define Anglican doctrine, um, have a whole article devoted to, to popping this idea. So Article 18 
says it's about obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ, says, I mean, it, it reserves the only Anglican curse that I can think of, an anathema for people who teach universalism. It says they also are to be held accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, as long as he's diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. Because scripture does set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. And I suppose, I mean, mm. there you go, our actual doctrine is against it, um, stated. The whole tenor of Anglican doctrine is really against it in terms of our desire, our longing to see people know Jesus and come to a living, saving faith in him, um, assuming that if they don't, there's a judgment coming. But, I mean, the other thing is, what's the point of the Church of England? I mean, what is the point of PCC meetings and keeping those buildings going um, and all of that rigmarole if we're all saved in the end and don't even need to bother? We might as well do something else with all those resources, all that money, all that time and effort if if the gospel being presented to people doesn't really matter. Is that right? Well, well, that's true. Yes, conversion doesn't matter. You know, if everyone's going to be saved, it doesn't matter if you get converted to being a Christian. Um, belief doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter. Mm. I certainly wouldn't mind you know, some evenings back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. evenings back. Yes. Well, there you go. That's why it's such an attractive heresy, I suppose. Mm. And I suppose, I mean, the, what is the point of the whole Bible in, in this case? If universalism is true, why am I following Jesus? He told me that I would have to pick up a cross and suffer in this life if I followed him? Well, if universalism is true, then I don't really need to do that because he will save me anyway um, if he's the saviour. And if he's not, because everything's true somehow, we're all just different paths up the same mountain. doesn't really matter. I don't need to follow Jesus even when it's hard and do the difficult things that he tells me to do about you know, mortifying my sin and loving people I don't like and so on. And you know, to be honest, what is the point of all that teaching on hell that Jesus gives us? I mean, he's the one who talks about it most, not not Paul or some other bad guy in the early church, according to some. No, it, Jesus. Jesus says a lot about those who don't believe, those who don't follow him and where they will end up. Um, why did he do that if he know it's if he knew it wasn't true? They scare the children. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that just turns Jesus into a scary man who likes to scare kids and um, mm. weak-minded people um, who can't work things out for themselves, I suppose. Yeah, what's the point of evangelism? I mean, it's difficult and hard doing apologetics and evangelism, trying to invite people to church events or talking to them about Jesus and so on. Don't need to bother if universalism's true. But it is interesting, isn't it, how we, we have in recent decades very much, I'm thinking within the Church of England here, but very much made a lot about other things about the church apart from 
what we would consider to be its function and uh, spreading the gospel. You know, we talk about right. our great heritage and we're encouraged to sort of put up interpretation signs around our buildings and to really push the heritage aspect. A lot of carol services will be there for having mince pies and a warm feeling and afterwards and don't put a carol service on the 18th because it'll crash with the World Cup final and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> but there is, we have had a great push and a push about, I mean, we are, the church does good things, food banks and other things we'd hard to criticise, of course. Yes. But it's not our core function, but it's that which is very much promoted um, by the church in the media more widely. We, we do seem to be shy or embarrassed, really, of that heritage that we have of, of the scriptures. The scriptures, you know, the book of, come to the Book of Common Prayer, not because it tells us good things about God, but because of the beauty of its language and because of its oh. cadences, which are true, but it ignores the point of the thing in the first place. And I, and I see an awful lot of this kind of heritage tourism um, things that we're, maybe it's just because I've got two grade one listed buildings and two grade two star listed buildings, but you know, there's a great push towards almost taking the Christianity out of all these things and trying to promote a Christless uh, experience within the churches. And I just wonder whether it's that kind of embarrassment, really, that we just don't want to have to say to somebody, do you know what, you might be headed somewhere you don't want to go. Well, no, it is It is hard to tell people things that they don't want to hear like that, to say your ideas are wrong and, and need to be changed, I mean, need to be corrected. And I suppose none of us want to preach that funeral sermon, no, granny's gone to hell, but you needn't. So, I mean, there are ways and means of doing this sort of thing. But, you don't uh, actually say it that way, do you, Chris? <laughs> would I? Would I? No, of course I don't. But I think there are, perhaps we just need to be better at, at the way that we express this thing. I think there is, I think, there's that caricature that whenever you're going to start talking about hell, you're going to be some kind of fire and damnation preacher. Whereas that's not, we're doing it out of love. It was God so loved the world that he came, he sent his only begotten son so that, so that people would not perish. It's there. And so it's an act of love that we say this. So we need to start, stop seeing this as being bashing people and start seeing it as loving them. Yeah. If I went to the doctor, I don't want to hear the diagnosis. Well, of course, yes. And... And while it's um, it's not just that if universalism is true, then uh, the the church doctrine whatever doesn't matter, but justice doesn't matter either. It, it means uh, people doing wrong to each other doesn't matter. That there will be no justice, there will be no punishment for evil. It, it will all just never be resolved, which is actually a horrible thought. And, and I think people whose instinct is for things like justice and love in this world are forgetting that if if there's no consequences, then those things don't matter. Yeah, absolutely. That's very powerful. So we, we do actually want justice. Again, that's another one of those human universal desires. We want justice. Um, and if universalism mm. was to be true, if everybody is saved in the end, I mean, that means Hitler is going to be saved in the end. Hitler. Well, and there would never be any uh, sort of universal balance or all these lovely things that we love to think of. Um, no, that if there is no, uh, if, if God doesn't hold people accountable for their sin, either through their punishment or through Jesus taking the punishment for them, that means God doesn't care when we hurt. I mean, that, that's, well, and that's absolutely not true. He does care. It would be a monstrous universe in which God didn't care. Yeah. 
about any of that stuff and just said, no, it's fine. You can come into heaven anyway. Um, that would be a monstrous universe. We want some sort of justice. The question is, where is the line? Um, mm. and, and that's when we get into that whole idea. Is there an absolute truth? Is there an absolute line, um, a, a, a judgment standard by which we must be judged? Um, and that, that becomes an interesting way into a conversation because we all need that. We want that to be there. I guess I want to be the judge, really, because then I can have my friends in heaven and people I don't like on the other side. Um, but we also have a sense that that's not that's not really fair. That's not really true, um, don't we? And I think yeah. as well, if you if you take out that sense of judgment, as Kirsty just said, then you kind of wonder what's going on on the cross as well. You kind of wonder why is it that it had to be such a horrendous death? Why? Was a crucifixion necessary? If it's no, if there's no atoning going on in there, mm. um, you, I've often thought, you know, the, the the horrificness, if that's a word, of the crucifixion reflects the horror of the sin and the offence that it is before God. But it kind of it makes a bit of a nonsense of all of that. Although I suppose people might counter that you know, he died so that everybody's sin might be forgiven in that moment. But then that still leaves you with Lee's problem of looking forward to sharing a cloud with Hitler which might not be the most attractive prospect for all eternity. No. It is interesting that in church history, um, I mean, people have opposed universalism as it keeps turning up, as you say, right from the earliest times and at different times in church history. People, Orthodox Christians, have often opposed it on the grounds that that will just lead to immorality, that if people don't think there's a judgment, then they'll mm. just be totally immoral, which in some sense that that is what happens if, you know, you see people who don't believe that they will ever be held accountable and so will go and do whatever they feel like. But mm-hmm. it, uh, in a way, it, it is also part of what I was saying before, people's sense of moral categories doesn't go away and if it's not inhabited by biblical ideas, they'll just pick other things and define those things as immoral. And uh, if I can bring in uh, another thing I've been working on, the middle class has always been fiercely moralistic and still is. It's just moralistic about different things Mm. now. So you still get that sort of moralistic, self-righteous judgmentalism. It's just about different things if you're a universalist than if you aren't. Go on, that's fascinating because you've been working on class and class distinctions um, particularly within evangelicalism. Um, and we hope to hear a bit more about that in the future for the Church Society yeah. podcast, everybody, and in other ways too. So how does that work? What What is middle-class morality? Where is that coming from? Is it defined by the gospel or something else? Um, and how does it look different for universalist well, middle-class people? Well, typically now you'll, you'll see um, middle-class morality applied in things like uh, the... Oh, what's it called the extinction, environmental rebellion. rebellion. Yes, we're incredibly moralistic. I mean, we will even stop ambulances taking people to hospital because uh, the more important thing is to protest against the degradation of the environment. Um, it's uh, and it's thoroughly condemning anyone who doesn't hold to their views. Uh, and you're seeing that a whole range of um, you know, uh, Western 
liberal viewpoints. They, these are the things that people become intensely moralistic about now. It's not as if you remove moralism and judgmentalism um, by taking on something that sounds, you know, more, more tolerant and inclusive like universalism. You just become moral about different things, which is not to say that all middle-class people are universalists. I no. mean, I, it, it's just that these ideas do frequently go together. Fascinating. Fascinating. Chris, do you want to come back on that? No, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's, well, you could go on Twitter and have a look around and you can see the judgment there, as Kirsty's saying, sort of red in tooth and claw. And I think we find ourselves as the church in a particular issue because the sorts of things which we may have wanted to be uh, in the past, we would have been, the moral standards we would have held are now being subverted. So the church is now itself being judged. The church is now itself being seen as evil. And and we're not used to that, particularly in England, where we have been the, the cultural expression of England, the Church of England. Now to have core beliefs, and it may well be, you know, heaven and hell be a core belief that is now viewed as evil. I don't think we, we know how to deal with that because we've always been the middle-class expression of, of England in the Church of England. And now we suddenly find ourselves against or they're against us or whatever it might be and that's profoundly difficult i have wondered whether bishops and others who move much more in those circles than the lowly likes of us feel that pressure much more intensely um and maybe that's a harder thing for them to deal with i yes we used to be thought of as being too moral but now we're thought of as being immoral. I think so. And as Christians, we've got to be prepared for this, that, you know, we've we've had a very easy ride in the West and and that is coming to an Mm -hmm. end um, in many ways and we have to be used to being seen as the baddies because we've never really seen ourselves in that way before. We're the goodies, obviously, Mm. but, you know, other people think we're the baddies. That's right. So um, what is is the, the answer then, the basic answer that the Bible is not universalist, not just those verses, isolated verses I've quoted, but the whole tenor of what the Bible is trying to say, that the the gospel is presented to us by Jesus, is that we need to repent and believe in the gospel because there's a judgment coming, Uh, that the gospel is presented by the apostles is the same. Uh, Paul says that um, God has set a day on which he's going to come and judge the world by Jesus, the man he rose from the dead, um, and appointed as judge, and therefore we must repent, otherwise we will face consequences on that day. So the, the Bible is presenting to us a, a repent or believe, um, turn or burn, is how some people have described that, that it, which is Spurgeon's right. sermon title, yes. Yes. Um, oh, it was Reformers yeah. too, English Reformers. Yeah. So that is how the English reformers um, of the Anglican Church and evangelicals of all stripes, whether Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever, have presented the gospel because that is that is what we're given in the in the scriptures. And so the answer really to universalism is to teach the truth um, in a loving way, because ultimately it isn't loving to give people the false assurance that they're going to heaven if they're not. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. It's the risk, isn't it? I often think, you know, I'm talking to universalist friends and I think, and and I've said in the past in discussions, you know, if you're right in universalism and I'm wrong in preaching the gospel, eternally nobody's harmed, it doesn't matter. But if I'm right and you're wrong, 
you've condemned a whole lot of people to never hearing the gospel. And it's almost back to Pascal's wager, isn't it? It's that sense of, actually, the stakes are extraordinarily high on this question. We need to be very, 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 very certain indeed if we're starting to say that universalism is true because the consequences of that belief, particularly for those in pastoral ministry, you know, and what we're teaching our congregations, is a big deal. Just for those who might not be aware of it, what is Pascal's wager? Just you know, tell I, was our hope, listeners. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> it, it, was ba- it was something along the lines of if if um, if Christianity is wrong uh, and I don't believe it, well, that doesn't particularly matter. Uh, if Christianity is right and I don't believe it, then I'm I'm stuffed. If uh, if I believe in Christianity but it doesn't exist. Well, that doesn't really matter either. And there's a fourth one I can't remember. Uh, oh, Christianity is right, and I am believing in Christianity, then I'm fine. So actually, the safest way to do it is just to treat it as if it is right, because there's no bad consequences in that. But I also know that I'm not condemning myself to some terrible uh, mistake by... So you're basically saying that the prob- it's just the safest bet is just to believe that Christianity is true. I've put it really badly. If you can hear a little scraping sound, that's Pascal turning in his grave. <laughs> And Kirsty, who used to teach philosophy, yeah. is probably appalled. Yes, but, uh, why did you ask her? Why no, didn't you no, ask that's her? That's correct, wasn't it, Kirsty? That's yeah. basically right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Now, I'm just going to pause and see if you, if either of you have any other great stories or anecdotes to tell, because at the end of the Universalism podcast, there might be something to say. I know at the end of the Gnosticism one, Kirsty told me after we'd stopped recording that she had a great story about a man turning into a lizard. And you'll never get to hear it, listeners. You'll never get to hear it because she didn't think of it until after we'd pressed uh, stop on the recording. So I'm just pausing. Are there any more great lizard men stories (laughs) that you want to tell our listeners? Sorry. I don't know of any lizard men who are universalists. No, all lizard men are Calvinists. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Great. In which case, we will draw stumps there, as we say uh, in the cricketing world. We'll draw stumps there at the end of the Church Society podcast again. Do join us again for another exciting episode of uh, uh, Heresy Half Hour um, with us here. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm